Hello everyone and welcome to a new season, or should that be series, of the Talking Pharmacy podcast, already causing controversy on Twitter before we've even started. My name is Richard Thomas, editor of Pharmacy Magazine, and join me on the pod this week are Arthur Walsh, editor of our daily news service, Pharmacy Network News, Neil Trainis, editor of Independent Community Pharmacist, and Helena Beer, editor of our title for support staff, Training Matters. Rob Darcott forgot that the new term has started and is currently wandering the leafy lanes of North Hampshire. His members sent in a note. Later in the pod, we'll play a short extract from an interview I did with the Boots Chief Pharmacist, Mark Donovan. But now we've all got our new school shoes on, sharpened our coloured pencils, done our lateral flows. Let's get started with Good Week, Bad Week. Would you like to kick us off, please? A good week or a bad week and for whom? Uh, bad week for the community pharmacy workforce. If you uh, if you take the warning of Community community Pharmacy Scotland at face value, um, the sector negotiator in Scotland issued a, a strong statement earlier this week calling for a temporary uh, stop in the recruitment of you know pharmacists and pharmacy technicians to general practice roles, saying that you know the, the, the current pace of it is just not sustainable for for Scotland's local pharmacies. Uh, they say in the past three years, the sector in Scotland has lost um, almost 600 whole-time equivalent pharmacists and about half that uh, number in pharmacy technicians um, to to general practice roles. And they say that these roles are critical to, quote, even the most basic functions of our 1,258-strong uh, network of pharmacy teams. And while they appreciate, you know, that, that um, pharmacy professionals will bring value wherever they are, it's uh it's a big it's 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 the major contributing factor to to the workforce pressures in Scotland. There's simply not enough pe- people to go around to, to 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 meet to meet the needs of of patients in Scotland. Um, Leila Hambeck, the chief executive of the Association of Independent Multiple Pharmacies, I always find that a mouth a bit of a mouthful that that um association name. Um, she said the situation is just as bad as England in, in England and Wales. Um, and actually, I spoke to her a few months ago for an article on on this topic, and she pointed out that, um, in her view, a lot of the the pharmacists that leave for general practice roles are actually sort of uh, doing tasks that are not sort of worthy of their license. Um, so, 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 so while it's, it can be sort of tempting to to jump ship. Uh, from pharmacy for 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 all sorts of reasons then from community pharmacy for all sorts of reasons then will it be satisfying in the, in the long run um i mean it's it's interesting that it also has come out we ran a survey in the summer that you know uh pointed to these trends sort of uk wide uh 67% of our respondents said they were thinking about leaving community pharmacy and half said they were they would consider general practice and primary care specifically um and they all uh they they, they they, they sort of raise things like workload, unsatisfying work, excessive demands from area managers, particularly in the multiples, that 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 kind of thing. Which, um, so but because they they they, it, what shone shone through so strongly in the comments was was that they were not happy with their conditions. Part of me is while I definitely appreciate the need that uh, the point that community farms in Scotland has raised. Part of me is a bit uncomfortable with it. You know, people are leaving because they're not happy with their jobs. Is the answer to say that um, that that recruitment should effectively be 
banned or, or I, I, don't, I don't know how exactly it would it would work this this temporary halt, halt cessation um um yeah it, i mean it's a, it's a tough question of course there are those who, who even doubt that there is a low uh, a pharmacist shortage um a lot of the uh, locum spokespeople say it's just people who don't want to uh to to work for the conditions or the pay that that you know multiples in particular are providing um i mean it's hard to sort of get at real clear answers here but um definitely it's i think one of the big and growing issues in the sector yes yeah it certainly it certainly is thanks arthur um just thinking of what what you said there it does seem to me that the the pda and others are, are, are reducing this to a a very reductive debate concerning locum rates and and as you say arthur working conditions and, and these are you know really relevant issues of course but i don't know my I think my view is that the it, pharmacy's workforce crisis, and it is a crisis, is uh, is more of a coming together of a range of complex issues, some foreseeable, some not. And, and pharmacists moving to GP practices, which was done, remember, without any planning or consultation, really, is very much part of that. Um, but you're right, Arthur, freezing recruitment to primary care, you know, that's quite a drastic call um, and isn't a long-term solution, as you suggested. But, you know, if you can't get pharmacists or locum cover and you, you you can't open your pharmacy then that feels like a, a, a pharmacist shortage to me and that, that needs immediate action so maybe this is part of that and um, Neil what, what did you make of, of of this this well it is a crisis isn't it? let's call it a crisis yeah, I think it is a crisis yeah and um, I've got to say I'm rather flabbergasted uh, when it comes to Scotland I take the point about England and, and maybe to a slightly lesser extent Wales, but uh, maybe Northern Ireland. But, you know, it's, when it comes to Scotland, I'm really surprised uh, in one sense because Scotland's a pretty good place to work, isn't it, if you're a pharmacist? Um, and for community pharmacy as a, as a sector, it's it's a it's a forward-thinking country with a forward-thinking uh, administration. They value pharmacy, uh, as we've seen time and time again. Yeah, Scotland are leading the way um, in, in all sorts of ways uh within community pharmacy and i'm really really surprised i take the point about locum rates and and, and some of the other uh, factors that, that that are perhaps uh, impacting on this but all in all i'm i'm, I'm pretty flabbergasted that, that people actually find it quite difficult or, or or are unhappy working within in community pharmacy in scotland Purely for that reason, really, it, it's a forward-thinking, progressive country. Um, they they value their pharmacists there, um, and I'm just really surprised. By that's, a, that's a really good, really good point, Neil. So, what what else is going on here? See, um, it seems to me then that this is this raises, you know, wider issues about the attractiveness of community pharmacy as a as a career option, and everyone has a, has a part to play in that in addressing that. But, you know, doesn't it show our there's been a complete lack of proper workforce planning? And I know that's incredibly difficult to do. And I know it takes years to, to plan and implement any meaningful changes to the workforce. But, I, you know, it just shows to me that pharmacy bodies and the NHS have, have fallen asleep on the job here. Because clearly at the moment, it doesn't look as if we have a sustainable supply of pharmacists to meet these long demands and um you know i think we need to get together in pharmacy everyone get together employers um employees professional bodies the nhs and and start thinking of some solutions here both short term 
short term and long term. Just um, to come back in, Richard. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, on. on the point about Scotland as well. I mean, uh, of course, they they launched their in the last few days their the roadmap uh, to take forward. You know, community yeah. farm, the NHS in Scotland, and and at the heart of that. As you, as you well know, is uh, is community pharmacies, you know, and a whole range of uh, developments and and, uh, and and new sort of programs that will put community pharmacies even more uh, at the front line of the yeah. NHS. There. So it just really surprises me. But uh, you know, I guess there there are other things that at play here. I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you, Neil. Actually, just I think when you think of all the, some of the factors that are going on at the moment, you know, you've got COVID vaccination clinics, you've got the pandemic. You've got people actually wanting maybe a better work-life balance than you get in community pharmacy at the moment. There are there are regional concerns. There are people wanting opportunities to to practice clinical skills. You know, you've got decline in in the numbers of part-time pharmacists. I mean, there are a lot of other factors, a lot of factors at play here. But you know, we need to start addressing some of these, or else what you'll find then, I guess, is you get you'll get commissioners in the NHS and and patients beginning to to lose confidence in the profession won't you and community pharmacists the skill drain will continue that's not going to leave the the sector in a good place at all listen this we'll come back to this this is going to run and run but um that's a really really good debate thank you arthur and neil for 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 kicking us off with that okay um helena let's go to you good week or bad week age yeah, thanks, Richard. Um, I have a bad week this week, and it's for smoking habits. So we've long heard that smoking rates are on the decline in the UK, with the country switching from topping the global tobacco consumption charts um, to becoming a leader in tobacco control. And I think for the most part that this trajectory is still true. Um, but research from UCL, the University of Sheffield and Cancer Research UK has found that the number of 18 to 34 year olds who smoke increased by 25% in England during the first lockdown. Um, and that's over 652,000 more young adults smoking compared to before the pandemic. And um, this research did also look at drinking rates, but I think I'm just going to focus on smoking here to keep things simple. Um, so the research was published in the journal Addiction, um, and it also found that in order for the government to achieve its target of a smoke-free England by 2030, which is defined as less than 5% of the adult population smoking, um, smokers would need to quit at a rate of around 40% faster than the predicted um, rate. So it really is a tough ask. Um, the study doesn't explain the increase in smoking rates among young people, just that it happened. Um, but the researchers said that given that many people mistakenly believe that smoking and drinking help to relieve stress, it's possible that some may have taken um, uh, smoking up for the first time or um, relapsed to help them cope. Um, I read um, an article in The Telegraph which explored some of the reasons behind the data as well and, and stress and boredom were cited as two of the main reasons for starting to smoke or, or increasing smoking during lockdown. Um, one person um, in the article uh, was quoted as saying it was something to do when you got bored and an excuse to go outside for a bit. Um, another said that when restrictions were still in place and you had to sit with your household in the pub, smoking outside was a way to sidestep 
sidestep the restrictions, mix groups and mingle with more people, um, which suggests there was a social side to it as well. Um, and also, um, yeah, throws up some some other concerns about um, sidestepping restrictions, but, but that's another story. Um, Deborah Arnott, the chief executive of Action on Smoking and Health, has referred to um, the growing number of young adult smokers as a ticking time bomb. Um, as smoking is an addiction which puts people on a path to premature death and disability, which is hard to escape, she says. Um, and I think now that pandemic restrictions are more limited, there's increasing opportunity for community pharmacies to reinstate or really start to push stop smoking services again um, and have those crucial conversations with customers about healthy living, the importance of quitting smoking for, for those very reasons that Deborah mentions. Um, and Stoptober, which is obviously coming up next month, um, is a brilliant way to start those conversations in a kind of non-confrontational way. Um, and as luck would have it, we've got a feature on this very topic in our September issue of TM. So um, I would uh, recommend that listeners look out for that for more information and top tips for promoting the campaign, getting customers involved and really spreading those messages about the importance of, of quitting smoking. Yeah, wow, that, those very worrying findings there, Helena. I mean, I suppose another example listening to you there of the pandemic kind of disproportionately impacting younger people this time with, with rising smoking and drinking rates. Um, but like you say, a real need now, I think, to turbo boost pharmacy smoking cessation services and, and, and a lot to do in pharmacy. It's become a little bit of a moribund area, I think, smoking cessation in pharmacy you could do with a bit of a, a boost. And there's a huge opportunity here. And judging by that story, Helena, that's um, desperately needed so now as promised we're going to play an extract from my chat with mark donovan of boots he came into our offices on wednesday so this was our first actual face-to-face -face interview for quite some while and you might hear a little bit of regent street traffic noise in the background but it was really nice to uh, have him in and to talk to him in person and we chatted about a whole range of things including yes pharmacist shortages or not and the full interview will be released next week as part of our In Conversation with podcast series. Uh, we covered some unexpected and unusual ground, though, as well, including are we losing empathy in pharmacy? And this is what Mark had to say. I, I'm fascinated by the concept of empathy, actually, to be honest. I've, I've been even more interested with it during the pandemic, um, the psychology of why people do things uh, and why people don't do things, I guess, really, and, and, and whether or not it's declining in community pharmacy empathy. But um, I actually think it's declining across society as a whole, but that's a whole different podcast series for you there, Richard, I think. But um, uh, but we're charged with delivering patient-focused care. That's what we are asked to do, and, and patients want kindness, warmth, empathy from their healthcare provider. And, and I'm fascinated about what extent uh, we deliver uh, to that end and what you know if any um, that impact has had on us as healthcare professionals in doing so because I think there's a big link between the provision of empathy and uh, burnout which I'm seeing more and more of in in community pharmacy um, a couple of weeks ago I was working alongside a pharmacist and got into a really good conversation about care which made me think about 
empathy and compassion particularly um, the vast majority of pharmacists that I meet vast vast majority um, really want to care for their patients you know to understand their needs and to help them uh, and this pharmacist said to me that she f- she felt she cared too much and 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 uh, it it struck me when she said it. You know, I do see pharmacists that struggle to balance what is a very demanding job, an increasingly demanding job, with their desire to care and be compassionate, and it seems to impact them individually uh, and, and hurt them. And this pharmacist was like that and, and subsequently decided to step down for four days a week, for example. You know, and, and I, others, others I see still have this care and desire, of course, uh, but they know that they have to shut off them uh, to protect themselves from being hurt, uh, and therefore they shut off, for good reason, uh, their empathy. Um, and I think you can, you can learn and, uh, about empathy and, and, and how you need to, you know, I think people need to manage empathy and being em- empathic, but, but being empathic also takes time and something that pharmacy as well as across uh, their healthcare systems as a whole really uh, is, is, is something we're short of. Um, so so I, am, I am fascinated by it and I look out for it uh, and, and particularly when it looks to uh, when it comes to mental ill health with our healthcare professionals and, and, and burnout. If, if, you, if you ask a psychologist they, they'll talk about three different types of empathy you know a cognitive empathy uh, which is simply predicting how other people feel and what they might be thinking. And, and I think a lot of pharmacists do this because it's done at an intellectual level. And you can, you can do it a step removed, but it can feel quite cold uh, and, and quite detached. And then there's this emotional empathy. And this is where I think burnout comes in, uh, which is you just, uh, you know, the, em- the emotions of a person are contagious and they can be very overwhelming and continuous emotional empathy can, like I say, burn, uh, burn people out. Uh, and, but there is something called compassionate empathy, a type of empathy that we could strive for that where we understand patients or a person's predicament and feel with them, uh, but we are moved to help if needed. And, and, and that's the type of empathy uh, uh, that, that is needed and is a powerful balance between the two. But it, I, I guess when it comes to empathy, and this is the wider point, it's not just burnout that makes me reflect on empathy. Um, compassionate and empathic leadership is an important uh, element of moving the profession on. We have to understand other people's perspectives and where they've come from to make progress in our profession. Uh, and if there's one thing that frustrates me about the profession of pharmacy is how fragmented we are. Uh, we only have a, a finite amount of energy and we use significant proportions of that, as, as far as I can see, in discussing and challenging and arguing internally to the profession. You know. Uh, uh, and I'm, you know, I am in danger of doing a, a Rob-style rant about pharmacy voice. Uh, but but how, how we seek to understand each other, what concerns us, what unites us in an empathic way, will surely put us in a better place for the future. You know, and I'm not necessarily pointing the finger here. You know, I need to change. Uh, I know Boots needs to change. And uh, employers need to change. You know, but we have to show empathy and understanding, and importantly, I believe, kindness to progress the profession. So Mark Donovan there, and the full interview, as I said, will be released next week. Right, back to good week, bad week. Neil, what do you have for us? Well, it's been a good week for the NPA. 
uh, Richard, um, because they've expressed concerns about the final form hub and spoke legislation will we'll take. Uh, now we all we're fairly well versed in 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 what's what's been going on so far. The government have pledged to hold a consultation, a public consultation on this. Still no date. Um, but full credit to the NPA really for raising concerns now rather than waiting for that consultation whenever that will happen. Um, now, the MPA has been vocal in the past about Hub and Spoke, uh, it's questioned its safety, its efficacy, the efficiencies, uh, and now they've raised um, concerns about the potential impact Hub and Spoke will have on independence, and they raised several good points. Um, now, there's been a lot of talk about choice when it comes to Hub and Spoke. You don't have to do this if you don't want to, um, as we've discussed previously on, on the podcast. Um, but as Nick uh, Kay, the NPA's vice chair, quite rightly said, the final legislation on Hub and Spoke dispensing should not in any way detrimentally impact pharmacies that don't have access to a hub or don't want to be part of a hub. And I think that's absolutely uh, cr- uh, critical. Um, now, they've called on the Com- Competition and Markets Authority to look into this, presumably once it becomes legislation. Um, and the NPA came up with five tests. Um, I'll just quickly rattle through. One is the hubs must be registered pharmacies and meet all regulatory standards. Two, hubs must be prevented from using their trusted position in the supply process to circumvent the relationship between the spoke and the patient, such as using patient dispensing data for other commercial reasons. Three, uh, that the existing bra- uh, barriers to entry for hub providers as a result of direct-to-pharmacy and limited wholesaler schemes must be removed, so registered providers can operate and compete in the market. Four, that the int- there should be an introduction of a set of standards that outline the duties and accountabilities of dispensing hubs, and what the NPA described as professional metrics, which should be collected and published by the hub to assist the spoke in selecting the potential provider. And lastly, um, any mechanism that prevents a pharmacy from switching hub provider should be prevented. Uh, that's to ensure that the that pharmacies can compete in the market. And I think this also strikes at that freedom of choice and movability within the marketplace, another really important point. Now, um, Daniel Lee, who the, who's the founder of Pharmacy to You, who runs HubRx, and I interviewed him fairly recently, it, we, he's trying to create a large-scale dispensing hub, in, dispensing hub in Leeds. And he said, you know, quite rightly, he was very, very justified. He says, it's not, it's not, Hub and Spoke is not an all or nothing opportunity. It's for those who want to free up their capacity, having reached a point where they are saturated with their dispensing and the dispensing income is just reducing. Uh, now, that's a very compelling, powerful argument for Hub and Spoke. And we all know that uh, provides more scope for clinical services. Um, but there are still many unanswered questions around Hub and Spoke, uh, even more unanswered questions than, than the NPA have, have, have stretched to, really, such as, you know, the cost to independence, what will hubs charge them, criminal liability, GDPR pitfalls, all sorts of unanswered questions around Hub and Spoke. I, you know, I, I personally still feel there's quite a way to go. Um, but the NPA are absolutely right to raise concerns uh, because at the end of the day, independents need to have all the information at, at their disposal before making a decision or committing to Hub and Spoke. Um, and why wait for it to become legislation? There's no harm in giving the giving the government a nudge now to say, look, these are our concerns. So for me, uh, it, full credit to the NPA. Yeah, NPA getting in early here, I guess, ahead of the, the public consultation that, as you say, Neil, is expected soon on Hub and Spoken. I guess doing what it can to, to perhaps set the agenda as regards ensuring a, a level playing field for independents. Interesting comments also from from Daniel Lee there, I thought. Um, I have a feeling we will return to this as well, maybe even as soon as next week when the prof is back. Uh, I've still not seen a feasible business model for Hubbard's book yet, by the way, but, you know, we shall see what develops over over the coming months. So the government does seem to want to push this through, though, doesn't it? Uh, Okay, so me to finish off. Um, I'm going to put my clinical hat on this week and say uh, it's been a good week 
for sufferers of cardiovascular disease with the launch of the new cholesterol-lowering drug, Inclisiran, which could prevent 55,000 heart attacks and strokes and save 30,000 lives in the next decade, uh, according to NICE, uh, which approved the drug earlier this week. Now, people are getting very excited about this. The drug uses something called RNA interference, uh, yeah, I've no idea either, uh, to increase the liver's ability to remove cholesterol from the blood and will be injected uh, twice a year in primary care settings. So that's good for compliance. And, and Neil, you made a very good point when you were, you were researching and writing this story that community pharmacists could uh, just as easily do this. Um, so this is going to be used for the secondary prevention of cardiovascular uh, events and has shown some very promising results in clinical trials. And it's currently under available under a joint commercial arrangement between the NHS and Novartis. So it is on the pricey side, but it would appear to be a significant addition to the uh, the drug treatment of cardiovascular disease. So we've also had, of course, the new hypertension case finding service announced as part of year three of the pharmacy contractual framework in England, uh, complete with new incentive funding to set up the service. So you know, a significant development all round, I think. A good week for patients then with or at risk of developing cardiovascular disease, um, the biggest killer in the in the UK. Um, you wrote this story, Neil, didn't you? What what did you think of it all? Well, as, as, you, as you say, Richard, it's a, a fantastic, uh, you know, the development in, in this area of, of healthcare. And, and, it, and the question that sprung to my mind was, you know, why can't pharmacists do this? Because when you look at, when you looked at the NHS England um, uh, announcement of this on their website, uh, what they actually said was uh, nurses will be able to administer these uh, injections in GP surgeries. No mention of pharmacies at all. And we contacted NHS England just to clarify, uh, almost you know, prod them a bit and say, hang on a minute, there's more to it, as we know, there's more to, uh, to the NHS than nurses and GPs. What about our, our trusted local pharmacies? And they eventually got back and said, yes, all healthcare professionals, including pharmacy, uh, pharmacists, um, they're primarily, they're perfectly placed to do this. That, that's what that's what struck me. So good to get that um, confirmation from NHS England. It's just a shame they didn't say that in the first place. Yeah, did I didn't didn't they clarify to say that um, it would be you know pharmacists in general practice could could administer these what? injections? So they didn't quite go as far as to say community pharmacists yeah. could, they? But you're right. I mean, it's a, what you know. Why not? You know, why why not? Indeed. Uh, so that's uh, that's an interesting development there as we said for for cardiovascular disease the prevention and, and treatment of um and that's a positive note i think to to bring us to the end of this week's pod uh, it's really good to be back and my thanks to neil to arthur and to helena uh, the pod is available on the pharmacy magazine website and from all your usual download sites just search for talking pharmacy uh, a reminder that we'll have our in conversation with pod special with mark donovan next week But for now, thanks very much for listening.